Well, good morning, everybody. I am so glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find 1 Peter chapter 4, and I will meet you in verse 12. Um, so 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12, is where we're going to be. We'll run through the end of the chapter this morning. We're continuing our study. If you're just now joining us and you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, we're continuing our, our summer study through Peter's first letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. So this is Christians who have been scattered all throughout modern-day Turkey. And they were dispersed because of persecution. Uh, The Roman Empire did not like Christians. They didn't like somebody being called the Lord other than the Caesar. And so Christians would be calling Jesus Lord rather than the emperor. So they were persecuted. They were um, killed. They were devoted to hardship and slavery and... Uh, a lot of, of terrible, terrible suffering because of their commitment to Jesus. Uh, so this series has touched on how do we stand firm as exiles? That's the kind of the theme of this whole series. And today we're talking specifically about suffering as exiles. If we followed Jesus for any amount of time, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, there's probably certain instances in your life that you can think about and remember when you were tested for your faith. Perhaps it was a conversation with family or friends. Perhaps it was a, an opportunity to commit sin and whether or not you were going to follow in that desire to sin or not. You were subject to perhaps some hardship because of your faith. Maybe it was just an awkward conversation where you found out that your friend isn't a Christian and doesn't like Christians or what Christians believe. Maybe it was bullying. Maybe you were... Uh, looked down upon or mistreated because of your commitment to Jesus. Maybe it was something even more intense. What I hope we can learn this morning from Peter's first letter is that these kinds of instances are not anomalies in the Christian life. These are not rare things that we shouldn't expect. This is to be expected. And that's what Peter wants you and me to see. But he also wants to fill us with hope. He wants to fill us with joy in the midst of our own suffering on behalf of the name of Jesus. So there's purpose in the midst of your pain as you suffer for Christ. There is a sovereign Lord there in the midst of your suffering. And all that takes place in this life is ultimately for your good and for God's glory. So let's read the word together and we'll dive into the text. So 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we pray that you might bless the reading and studying of your word. It is here that we find your truth, your power, your insight, your revelation for us. And we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to behold your glory in the midst of these pages, that you would transform us from the inside out, give us hearts that are quick to love and desire and will to follow you more than anything else, that we would stand firm in the midst of suffering and give you glory and receive your blessing. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's three big ideas I want us to think about this morning as we think about this text from 1 Peter chapter 4. It's all about our suffering for the name of Christ, our suffering as Christians. And the first thing is this. Number one, do not be surprised by suffering. Do not be surprised by suffering. We've already mentioned this kind of in the introduction, and you've heard it in the text, but you and I as Christians should not be surprised when we come upon various trials. Peter's even already addressed this in chapter one of his letter. We've already talked about it a little bit, but it bears repeating. Peter begins this new section with a new term. He says, beloved, beloved, do not be surprised. He's writing to believers that he loves. He loves these people. He wants what's best for them. And so he tells them and us not to be surprised by fiery trials when they come upon us. Not if, but when. You and I are called to follow Jesus, which looks like taking up our cross. We read Jesus in the Gospels and he says things like, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And this will mean persecution. Jesus also tells us that in this world, we will have trouble. That's to be expected. It shouldn't surprise you or seem strange or random that something comes upon you uh, for the name of Jesus. No, it's because you're being tested, God says, through Peter. Now, we've talked before about the difference between being tested and being tempted, but it bears repeating. So let's think about this for a moment. When we are given a situation, we're given a set of options, we can either do a good thing or a bad thing, a righteous thing or a wicked thing, a holy thing or a sinful thing. As a Christian, we recognize that we are being, in some sense, tested, and in another sense, tempted. And it all has to do with who is putting the thing before us. Now, the devil tempts us. The the enemy of this world, the enemy of God, the one who hates and the one who steals and kills and destroys, the one who's the liar and the father of lies, the one who's the accuser of the brethren. This real enemy wants to tempt us to do something that brings dishonor to God. He tempts us to do something that we think will be good, but it will not be good for us. It's like bait on a hook, right? I see the bait. If I'm a fish, I see the bait, and I think, ooh, that's a worm. I like worms. I think it will be for my good, but it's not. It will actually kill me, right? The devil wants to tempt you. He's drawing you away from righteousness, away from holiness, and into sin. God tempts no one. God never tempts you or me or anyone on the planet to sin. His desire is that you and I would be holy. It's that we would be righteous, that we would be faithful. And so when these 
fiery trials come upon you, they test you. Now, to be tested is to be drawn into obedience, to be drawn into faithfulness, to be drawn into holiness. It's something that leads us to doing the right thing rather than the wrong thing. So here's the big idea. God will test you, but he will never tempt you. The devil will tempt you, but he will never test you, right? And we see this most clearly in the book of Job, right? So for those of you who don't know, just just a a big overview of the book of Job. There's a guy named Job. He was faithful to God. He was very blessed. He had families. Uh, He had a big, big family. He had a big, big uh, house and and a farm and animals and and money. He was was a well-to-do man, very blessed with God's blessings. And the devil goes to the Lord and says, you know that guy Job? And he's like, yeah, Job is great. Job is faithful to me. He loves me. He honors me. And the devil says, you know, he only loves you because you gave him all that stuff. Let me take all that stuff away from you and he'll curse your name. And God says, okay, let's see. You can't hurt him, but you can take away his stuff. Okay. And that right there is That's the position that I'm trying to show you. The devil wants to tempt you so that you would curse God, so that you would sin against him, so that you would do wicked things against him. God will allow trials in your life to test you so that you may be found faithful. He wants to show you that he is able to preserve you through that trial. So remember... God tests you as opportunities for faithfulness. And look at verse 13. What does Peter say for us to do when we find ourselves in trials, when we find ourselves in suffering? He says, rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, you share Christ's sufferings. When you're tested, when you suffer as a Christian, you share in the sufferings of Jesus. Remember, Jesus suffered. Jesus was sinless. He had no sin in his life, and he still had a life full of trouble. And when you suffer in his name, you're sharing in his sufferings. It's not that you're adding to Christ's sufferings as though Jesus' sufferings didn't do enough. You don't add to what Jesus has accomplished, but his suffering gives meaning and context to your suffering. As you follow Jesus, as I follow Jesus, I will walk in his way. And his way is regularly marked with fiery trials. His way is regularly marked with testing. It's regularly marked with suffering. Jesus was always faithful. And so if I'm walking in the way of Jesus, the the call on my life is to be faithful in the midst of my suffering, to rejoice as I share in Christ's sufferings. And Peter promises, we will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, So think about your life in the context of all of eternity. It's like a blip, right? It's like a grain of sand in the ocean. It's like a a grain of sand in the the desert. It's like a drop of water in the ocean. It's, It's seemingly insignificant in comparison to what is really there. And Jesus, Peter says rather, that if you rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings, as you persevere through the fiery trial, when Jesus's glory is revealed, when Jesus comes back to make all things right, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, 
you will rejoice and be glad. You will be filled with joy. This is incredibly good news for us because in this life, choosing joy in the midst of our suffering often doesn't make any sense, right? If I'm struggling because someone is being uh, really mean and hateful to me because I'm trying to be faithful to Jesus, it doesn't make sense to most of the world for me to go, this is an opportunity for me to worship. This is an opportunity for me to praise. This actually should lead me into greater joy. That doesn't make any sense unless you know that in the midst of your suffering, it's pointing you to a day where Jesus will come to make all things right. And that will be the day that all of our suffering, all of our trials will be replaced with gladness and joy. When Jesus comes, here's the big idea that should give us hope. When Jesus comes to make all things right, when you and I go to be with him forever, all of the trials of your life, all of the sufferings that you endure in this world will make total sense. You will know exactly, oh, that's why. That's why I had to walk through this thing so that these things could be produced. That's why I had to endure that kind of bullying or that kind of persecution or that kind of frustration with my friends or my family members or my coworkers because it did these things for me that I ended up using for God's glory in so many ways. You will know with perfect clarity God's purposes behind your pain at the day that his glory is revealed. So you can rejoice now because you know that you will rejoice then. So this year, as we look ahead to the next couple of weeks where you start school again, I'm sure all of you are super excited about that. <clears throat> this year, as we look ahead, I pray and hope for you that you will choose to take a stand for Jesus in the way that you speak in the way that you treat others, and in the way that you walk in this world. But if you decide to shine as light in the darkness, do not be surprised when fiery trials come. Don't be surprised when you try to live for Christ in the world that you're met with resistance. Don't be surprised when you try to be faithful to the Lord and how you interact with other people or how you share his gospel with other people. Don't be surprised when you're met with Suffering. <clears throat> you are not experiencing suffering because God has abandoned you. You're not experiencing suffering because God has just decided to leave you out alone on an island to just deal with your own problems. No, this text tells us that you're suffering, you're experiencing these fiery trials because he's growing you into the image of his son. He's helping you and leading you to walk in the way of Jesus. And if you know the life of Christ, you know that the life of the Lord Jesus began in humiliation and suffering and pain, and it ended in exaltation and glory. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. That all of this suffering, all of this hardship was worth, all of this humiliation was worth what he knew would come at his exaltation and glory. So don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by it. Number two, not only should you not be surprised by your suffering, do not be ashamed in suffering. Number two, don't be ashamed in suffering. You should not be ashamed. You shouldn't feel or live with shame when you suffer for Christ. Let's read these verses with me again, starting in verse 14. 
He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're not shamed. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In those days, in the first century, as Christians were being dispersed all around the known world because of persecution, the name Christian began to be used. Originally, you read the, Old, the New Testament, you read the Gospels, you read the book of Acts, you read some of Paul's letters, you'll, you'll rarely see the word Christian. What you'll see is disciples or followers of the way or followers of the name. The term Christian or little Christ or someone like Christ came to be used originally as a term of insult. Pagans would call followers of Jesus Christians as an insult because they would mock Christ and you were a Christian, so you were also a person worthy of being mocked. And Peter leads these exiles to a stunning truth. If you suffer in the name of Christ, if you suffer as a Christian, if you're insulted, you should not be ashamed you should recognize that that's a blessing. Being counted as a Christian should never lead you to feel shame, but to feel blessed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, Peter says. Now, why? Well, verse 14 tells us, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit, who is regularly at work, always at work, but not really in the limelight, right? He's working behind the scenes to empower and preserve God's people so that they might give glory to God in this life and forevermore. So get this. If you're insulted as a Christian, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you should be blessed because that means the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's the only way that they would count you with Christ. Remember that Jesus had the Spirit of God on him during his earthly ministry. <clears throat> you remember his baptism? He comes out of the water being baptized by John in the Jordan River. And the clouds kind of open up and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And and the Spirit, it says, descends like a dove and comes to rest on Jesus. And all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, the Spirit of God rested on him. So, So get this point. The same Spirit that was resting on Jesus during his time of humiliation and betrayal and insult and arrest and false judgment and ultimately his flogging and his crucifixion and his death. That spirit that was on Jesus during all of those things is the same spirit that rests on you. You have that spirit, the spirit of glory and of God. That's not a point of shame. That's a point of blessing. That's a reason to glorify God because the Spirit now rests on you. You're counted with Christ. So suffering for Jesus is evidence that you are in Him. 
Suffering for Jesus isn't evidence that you've gone off the path. Suffering for Christ is reasons to be convinced that you are on the path, that you are following the way, that you are living in Christ's name, that you are filled with his spirit. It's evidence that you are led by the same spirit who led Jesus to the same kinds of persecution and suffering. Now, let's be clear. Like Peter says in verse 15, the kind of suffering that we're talking about this morning is not the same as suffering because of our sins. So what we're talking about this morning is persecution, fiery trials, suffering because of your faithfulness to Jesus, not because of your sins against him. That's what Peter gets at in verse 15. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Getting caught in sin and paying the price for it in this life is not Christian suffering. That's the consequences of disobedience. All of us have consequences for disobedience in this life. Jesus has paid our debt on the cross, and we are free, guilt-free, innocent, and righteous before God the Father. But in this life, when we sin, there are consequences. It's why the the, the writer of Proverbs says, be sure your sins will find you out. Peter runs the whole spectrum here. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So <clears throat> in your culture, in our culture, and in the culture of the first century, murder's up there as like some of the worst things you could do, right? Like, Think of some of the most heinous sins you can commit. Murder's up there, right? Stealing in that culture was also very, very bad. You don't take things that aren't yours. Then he says, don't suffer as an evildoer. Well, that's pretty generic. Uh, Anybody who does evil things is an evildoer, and so you're guilty of those things. Then he says, don't suffer as a meddler. In other words, don't be nosy. Like don't, don't get into conversations and into things that are not about you. Don't, don't try to meddle into other people's affairs. So Peter's running the whole gamut from being a murderer to being nosy. All of this, this is not what I'm talking about, Peter says. Don't suffer on account of these things. These things are sin. These things dishonor God. This doesn't bring glory to Jesus when you get found out because you're a nosy person or because you're a thief because you're a murderer, don't do these things. But Peter does say, Christian, if you're suffering because of Christ, give glory to God in that name. Because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. When we sin, we're convicted of that sin. We're led by the Spirit of God to repent of that sin, to turn from it. And we're reminded of the grace of Christ that washes us clean. The Spirit of God does not shame you. This is huge. Boy, girl, leader, teenager, if if you are walking in shame because of sins that you have committed, You need to hear this. The Spirit of God does not cause Christians to shame. Now, He convicts Christians of their sin so that He might lead them out of their sin through repentance. But He doesn't condemn Christians. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So you don't have to walk in shame anymore. You don't have to walk with this racked guilt in your life. If you have committed sin, join the club. That's the whole world and the whole church. But the Spirit of God is leading you out of shame, out of guilt, out of feeling ashamed, and into holiness, into life, into being washed by the blood of Jesus. It's why John will say in his, later, in his letter, if we confess our sins, he, that is Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you suffer in Jesus' name, you do not have to be ashamed. When we are insulted and persecuted, we're reminded of the blessing of being counted as a child of God and as a member of the body of Christ. But there is no room for shame to mark us as believers. So let this be an encouragement to you. If you're walking in shame, perhaps it's the enemy distorting the conviction of the Holy Spirit to lead you into being inactive, spiritually weak, frustrated. These are not the things that God wants for you. If you're walking in shame, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is ready and willing to take it from you. So don't be ashamed in your suffering. Don't be ashamed in your suffering. Third thing, final thing in our passage this morning. Don't be surprised. Don't be ashamed. Number three, do not give up. Do not give up while suffering. Because I shouldn't be surprised and because I shouldn't feel any shame, I should be empowered to persevere, to keep going, to not give up, to not quit. Because here's the reality. If, if you haven't experienced this yet, you probably will. And that's this. Faithfulness to Jesus in a, in a world that doesn't know him and doesn't honor him is regularly exhausting. Loving people who are hard to love, who don't know Christ, trying to lead them to seeing the good news of the gospel and being met over and over and over with the fact that they're blind because of their sin is exhausting. Being insulted and maligned and taken advantage of and humiliated for various reasons because you're trying to be faithful and obedient to Christ in a world that doesn't know him or recognize him, much less love him, is exhausting. And if you're not careful and I'm not careful, we can get in our own strength and our own capacities and our own flesh and we'll think it is not worth it. It's not worth it to keep being run over day after day at my school, at my home, at my job, on my team. It's not worth it. And what Peter is telling us is, yes, it is. Don't quit. Peter tells us that judgment is coming. The time for judgment begins at the household of God, Peter says. Now, all of us will stand before Jesus to be judged. There's a day coming where he will sit on a great white throne, Revelation tells us, and the living and the dead will stand before him to be judged. Books will be opened, our deeds will be known, and we will either praise the Lord for the work of Christ on our behalf or be filled with shame and despair. 
we will either rejoice as those who are saved by grace or we will lament the sentence of everlasting torment. As Christians, judgment does not lead to condemnation, but to purity. Right? So in the same way, our suffering is not to tempt us away from God, but it's to test us so that we might be faithful to him. Judgment in this life and before Christ is not to condemn us as Christians, but it's to purify us and to make us like him. And that's what Peter is showing his brothers and sisters in exile in this verse, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter is telling you and me and these exiles that God's judgment has already begun. It will come in its fullness when Christ returns, but it's already begun here and now in the household of God. The church, through their suffering, is being purified. It's being made more and more like Christ. The body of Christ is being conformed into the image of Christ. Now, in verse 18, it says, if the righteous is scarcely saved. In my translation, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but maybe yours, like the NIV says, it is hard for the righteous to be saved. Or the Christian Standard Bible says it, I think best. If a righteous person is saved with difficulty, I think that's the better way to understand this. So what what does this quote mean? It's not that you and I as Christians are barely getting into heaven, like scarcely getting saved. It's that we will be saved with difficulty, meaning it will be through trials that we come to heaven. It will be through suffering. We have to walk down that road before we get to God's throne. Through our suffering, through this difficulty, we are brought through to our final salvation. But for those apart from Christ, for those who don't know Jesus, who haven't been washed by the blood, who haven't been born again, who haven't been given new hearts. For those people, their lives are the beginning of their sufferings, not the end. Our suffering as Christians leads to joy and to gladness and to blessing and to life. For those apart from Jesus, their suffering leads to hopelessness and pain and torment and ultimately death. Therefore, Peter says in verse 19, having said all this, we press on. He says, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Keep going, keep walking, keep obeying, keep loving, keep trusting Jesus, keep doing good, not because you have to earn anything, but because you know without a shadow of a doubt that you have already received everything in Christ. And that the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing, right? Paul says the sufferings in this world is a light momentary affliction in comparison to the weight of glory that is before us. In other words, Peter's saying, I know it's hard. I know it's hard to keep pressing on, to keep being kind, to keep being self-controlled when that person pops off at you again, to keep on being faithful when someone doesn't want to hear the gospel anymore, to, to keep being loving when that person doesn't feel like you love them very well. But keep going, 
keep doing good. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Don't worry about what the world is doing because you know where you're headed. So two final points of application as we kind of bring this thing to a close. You're not to be surprised when suffering comes. You're not to be ashamed when you find yourself insulted. And you're to keep going. Do not give up while suffering. So first, hopefully all of us have seen or have thought, at least in part as we've talked about this text together, the importance and the urgency of evangelism. All of us have friends and family and neighbors who do not know Jesus. All of us. And right now, they are suffering in this world with no hope and no future. They desperately need the saving power of Christ. They need the Holy Spirit of God that rests upon you to rest upon them and bring them from death to life. And that only happens through repentance and faith in the gospel. Responding to the gospel that we've been called to go and proclaim. God has seen fit in his wisdom and providence to surround you as a Christian with unbelievers who don't know Jesus, perhaps so that you might be the ones to tell them. So I pray that you will join me in rejoicing in our salvation and flowing out of that joy, committing to be a witness to those who do not yet believe. You and I need to prepare to be met with suffering and hardship. As we go out as faithful witnesses of the gospel, we will be met with fiery trials. But we also should prepare to expect the Lord to move. That's the first point of application. We need to, we need to feel the urgency of evangelism. We need to trust our souls to a faithful creator. We need to keep doing good and, and know that God is in control. I'm not, I'm not saying that you put this weight on your shoulders that I have to go save my friend Jimmy. Well, you don't have that kind of power. I need to go save my sister. Well, you don't have that kind of power. But, but God does. And as a faithful witness to what God is doing, you may be the means by which they meet the one who can change them, the one who can save them. That's the first point. Second point is this. We have seen in this passage over and over and over again that suffering for the name of Christ is the regular rhythm of life for a believer in a broken world. It's the regular rhythm of an exile in a place that is not their home. Peter is leading and guiding these exiles that he's writing to to expect suffering, expect fiery trials. But that begs the question, if we are not experiencing any suffering, if we're not experiencing any kind of insult, if we're never maligned for the name of Jesus, if we're never brought to some kind of fiery trial for the name of Christ, why not? Now, in no way am I suggesting that you and I should go out looking for trouble or that you and I should go out as some sort of martyr complex to find something that we would die for. But I am asking, and I'm asking this as much, as, as much to myself as I'm asking to you. Why does the world not revolt at the Spirit of Christ in me? 
Like, why, why are the people in my life that, that don't know Jesus not rubbed the wrong way at times when I'm around them? Now, I'm not saying we have to be aggressive or combative. I mean, sinners loved Jesus, right? I mean, they flocked to him. And so we do want to have the aroma of Christ that's loving and kind and full of the fruit of the Spirit and something that would draw sinners to, to start to wonder. But at the same time, we live in a world that hates Jesus. And if the world never hates us, what does that say about our faithfulness to Jesus? Could it be because they've never seen him at work in me? Could it be that I'm just a good guy and a, and a good neighbor and I, and I try to bless my neighbors or bless my friends or have good conversations with them that they know I'm a nice person, a moral person, a person that they can trust, but they never get that point that I've actually surrendered my whole life to a man named Jesus that I believe called his own death and called his resurrection and then floated to heaven and then promises that he'll come back on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. Like, that's, that should be jarring. Like, we believe weird stuff. And it causes us to live a certain kind of way. And so, students, I stand before you having, having failed the test in many ways. I don't want to fail the test that God puts before me. I don't want to be tempted to hide my faith. I don't want to be tempted to tone down my faith because it's convenient. I don't want to be tempted to dishonor God's name. I want to honor him. I want to give glory to him in my obedience and in my boldness and in my willingness to suffer for his name, in my willing to be inconvenienced for his name. So I'm asking you to pray for me as, as I am promising to pray for you that the Spirit of God would fill us with all that we need to stand firm in the suffering that will come to us sooner or later. If we commit to be faithful to Him in a world that doesn't love Him, we will need each other to be encouraged to press on. We will need each other to remind each other that we should not live in shame, that we shouldn't be surprised, that we can rejoice together in our sufferings. I, mean, I think about Acts chapter 4, and I think about Peter and John being imprisoned and, and mistreated and and insulted and subject to various fiery trials by the Sanhedrin. And they're released from the Sanhedrin and they come back to the church and they start to pray and they worship God. And they don't pray that persecution would stop. They pray for more boldness. They pray that God would help them to press on. And so as I close, I hope that that would be your prayer as well that we would be marked by that kind of faithfulness in the midst of suffering, that we would actually live a kind of life that would, that would demand something from the world to respond. By God's grace, with repentance and faith, and for our sanctification, perhaps, fiery trials. So let's pray. God in heaven, we are grateful that we do live in a, a culture that still feels a sense of nostalgia for the things of God. We live in a land that is marked by liberty, that was built in many ways by faithful followers of you. 
We still live in a culture, especially in, in our local community, where many people claim the name of Jesus. But the fact is we live in the world. We live in a world that does not love you. We live in a world whose ruler is the prince of the power of the air, who is the devil, the one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, lurking and prowling to see whom he may devour. And Lord, my fear is that we don't suffer, we don't have to engage in any kind of inconvenience or persecution because we're not really seen as a threat. So may it never be said of us, Lord, that we renounce your name explicitly or implicitly, that we would be passive with our faith. God, help us to stand firm as exiles in this land that is not our home as we make much of your name. Remind us that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us and that you give us boldness and power to be faithful witnesses in what we say and in what we do. God, help us. Help me. As we think about family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors and teammates who are not Christians, who are not followers of Jesus, who desperately need to hear, would you use us to be your mouthpiece so that we might proclaim the good news of the gospel? God, we know that we cannot save others, but you can. And so we pray that you might do that through our faithfulness. Help us to stand firm. Help us to not walk in shame. Help us to not be surprised. Help us to press on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.